Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wright, says thank you for listening. Dungeons and Dragons, also known as D&D, is a phenomenally popular game in which players create complex characters and plots within a group setting. Players dive into a world filled with goblins, wizards, and more. And participants become central characters in their own stories. She Kills Monsters is a stage play that explores the world of D&D from an unusual and nuanced perspective. Later this hour, City Lights senior producer Kim Drobe sits down with the creatives behind the production opening soon in the Onyx Theater at Kennesaw State University. First, Korean fried chicken nuggets, kimchi fried rice, and volcano hot dogs, a delicious blend of Korean and American street foods, is the concept behind the pop-up restaurant TKO, short for the Korean one. Their brick-and-mortar location is open now in East Atlanta's Southern Feed Store. Chef Lino joins me now via Zoom to talk about this next chapter. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Would you give us a little background, please, on how you got into the restaurant business? This started in the early 2000s. Uh, my parents had a Korean restaurant in Orlando, Florida, and it did pretty well. But then the recession happened, so we had to shut our doors, and I kind of walked away from it. But then I moved to Atlanta, and I started working in a restaurant, and I just you know, found my passion for it again, and it was a lot of fun. And then um, I got a job at Lazy Betty. I was there for a few years, but then the pandemic happened. So with our doors being closed, we were forced to find alternative things for revenue. And we started doing pop-ups and I had so much fun doing it. So I was like, well, let me just try this on my own and create my own menu. And it just started from there. Mm. You know, in the past year, I've spoken with two Korean chefs and each talked about the emotional role of food in their lives. 
How has cooking been a connection to your family's past? Well, my parents immigrated here to America, and I was first generation. And so I grew up eating both Korean food and American food. My household was usually always Korean food, but when I would go out, I would eat American food. And uh, I kind of liked both, but I always wanted to eat what my American friends were eating. Like, I never had, like, a tuna casserole or biscuits and gravy till like, way later in high school. So I was like, oh, I really want to eat this. My mom's like, I don't know what that is. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just love doing it, yeah. What's very familiar to my friends was very foreign to me and then vice versa. I was like, you don't eat kimchi at house? And they're like, what is that? And so, but for me, uh, I just always loved it. And even though my Korean speaking is not very good, I can communicate to my parents by cooking Korean dishes and they'll enjoy and eat. They're like, wow, like this is really good. Like they were actually surprised that I can make Korean food. So that's kind of my way of communicating to my parents is through my cooking. I'm intrigued that your parents were surprised by your Korean cooking. What kind of dishes did they make or did your mother make for you growing up? So typically the staple of a Korean meal, there's always rice. Rice is the most important thing. So there's always rice and there's always side dishes known as panchan. And there's typically a protein, whether it's a bulgogi or karbi, which is usually safe for special days, but there's always some kind of meat. And then my favorite is that there's typically served with a soup. And I just love soups. And I remember like the first time I really enjoyed my mother's spicy soft tofu soup. I love spicy foods, but it was just so flavorful to the point of like I started watching her make it just so I can learn how to make it on my own. And eventually, like, I got the recipe from her. But when I go visit, they're in Orlando, Florida now. So when I go visit, I always ask my mom, like, can you please make some? I'll be in the week. I'll be here for the weekend. So please make sure there's enough for the whole entire weekend. So, When were you inspired to create TKO? The inspiration came from working at Lazy Betty. I, I love working at Lazy Betty. I was with them since day one. So almost almost four years, as much as I love that the, the quality and the craftsmanship of the food is amazing and they are one of the best restaurants, but a lot of my friends couldn't afford to eat there. They couldn't visit me. So I was like, I missed hanging out with all my friends. So I was like, well, you know what? Let me do these pop-ups with these dishes that I like to make and they're a lot more affordable and are a lot more approachable. So really, it was just an excuse to hang out and feed my friends so we could spend time together. So for those who aren't familiar, Lazy Betty had a fancy, high-priced menu? Yeah, it's a tasting menu, and you know it can range from you know, $120, $150, which is, you know, it's definitely worth the price point. But you know, my other friends were all cooks, who were all servers, and you know, we we eat fast food and junk food. And, you know, uh, so we're like, well, let me make something that's a lot more just casual and just, you know, basically to our price point. Yeah. But Lazy Betty is like, you have to do rigorous tests to like make the perfect dish. And for me, I was like, let's have a corn dog. <laughs> let's have a burger. So it was a lot more easier, a lot more like laid back and uh, a lot more fun. So. Well, and I would think you could please so many more people. Uh, Tasting menu of one hundred and twenty to one hundred fifty dollars isn't within most people's price range. Yeah. Why did you want to name your restaurant and at first your pop up the Korean one? 
I love the name of TKO for several reasons. One, you know, it's TKO can stand for technical knockout or total knockout, which is a part of like martial arts and fighting and video games. You get a perfect score, they call it TKO. So I was like, well, TKO sounds cool. You know, there's Taekwondo, so it's a play on martial arts. And I, I always dreamed, like, if I had a restaurant, I would make it look like a Taekwondo dojo. <laughs> but I was like, well, <laughs> it should have mean something. So I was like, I kept thinking about it. I'm like, well, oh, it's an acronym. TKO stands for the Korean one. At that time, too, uh, the Korean pop band, K-pop, uh, BTS was getting very popular. And, like, all my friends were like, what does BTS stand for? I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I think they just put those letters together <laughs> just to make up something. So I thought how I'm funny and ironic. I'm like, well, let me just say TKO. If they're going to be BTS, I'll be TKO. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. What's offered on the menu at TKO? So we have a Korean corn dog which is an adaptation of the American corn dog. And I don't know how or why it started. What the Korean corn dog is, it's battered, and but we do panko, and then we top it off with sugar. Ooh. And it's half a hot dog inside, and it's half mozzarella cheese. So it's like sweet, and it's cheesy, and it's savory. Again, I have no idea how it started, but that's just the way a Korean corn dog is. Okay, so you did not create this. <laughs> I did not. But I did create one dish, is our volcano hot dog. Yes, you must tell us the backstory <laughs> and what goes in it on top of it. Yeah, so years ago, I was working on a food truck in Orlando, Florida. It was a sushi food truck. It was called Sushi and Soul on the roll, and it's still open now. So we were serving sushi, and it was we were outside of this like punk rock bar. And the bar was busy, but we were not busy. And I made this joke. I'm like, man, these kids don't want sushi. Like, these kids want hot dogs and hamburgers. So as a joke, I went and bought some hot dogs. And I basically took all the toppings on our volcano roll and put it on a hot dog. I waited for a while, and then someone eventually bought it. And then, like, they came back with their friends. They're like, hey, like, that was really good. Can we get more of this hot dog? So it kind of was... Well, this that turned from spite actually turned out to be a really good seller. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to carry this dish forever because it's a fun joke for me because like, I, like, I elevated a hot dog or I uh, brought sushi down to the level of a hot dog. But essentially, <laughs> it's, a, yeah, it's a hot dog. And what I do is I top it off with this spicy crab salad. Then I torch it. Then I drizzle eel sauce, sriracha, scallions, and sesame seeds and some chili flakes. So when you eat it, it's your mind is playing tricks on you. You're like, well, it's a hot dog, but it tastes like sushi. So it's that's the volcano hot dog. Oh, my. Now, when people first try this combination, what have been some of the responses you've heard? <laughs> Most people enjoy it, but I've, I've seen some people get very upset about it because they're like... They can't understand it. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, is this sushi or a hot dog? And I'm like, well, just let your palate interpret it. <laughs> but uh, I just love it because I like whimsical things. And like, I like taking something that's familiar and making it foreign and taking something foreign and making it familiar. So for me, it's like, well, if you like hot dogs, you'll like this. And someone's, if you like sushi, you'll still like this. So it's, it's one of those fun things. I can play with both worlds. For some people, do you have to stop and explain what kimchi or eel sauce tastes like before they will taste it? 
luckily now i think with the boom of like korean culture whether it's k-pop music or korean dramas i believe korean culture is getting more and more popular so 15 20 years ago like i would have to explain what kimchi is but now most people will see it and like oh i love kimchi so i'm very lucky and grateful that korean culture is getting more popular not just through music or tv but through the food like a lot of my friends when we want to eat in a group setting they're like hey let's go out to get korean barbecue and watching my you know american friends like just gobble up kimchi and like eat korean barbecue it, it actually makes me feel so happy i don't have to explain kimchi as much anymore so it's, it saves me a lot of trouble trying to explain like yeah it's fermented cabbage which may not sound very appealing to most people but uh, it's making it a lot easier now. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with Chef Lino Yi, owner of the newly opened TKO, the Korean one. It's so heartening to know that these foods have made their way enough into American diets that you don't need to explain to everyone or to most people. I'm curious about what it was like having a pop-up business during COVID. Whether it's during COVID or outside of COVID, I have a lot of admiration for my other pop-up shows because a lot of people don't realize the amount of work that goes into it. Other than having a restaurant where you get deliveries sent to you, I would have to drive to all these other grocery stores, whether it's H-Mart or Beefworks Farmer's Market or Sam's Club. So I have to do all my own driving. I do all my own shopping. Then you have to bring it back and then unload your car, prep it, uh, whether it's the day before or the you know day of, and load it back into your car, drive to the site that you're doing at, whether it's a restaurant or brewery, unload your, all your cars. And just it's a lot of work and people don't see all the behind the scenes things. And the luxury of a restaurant, like you have a staff, you have a crew, you have a, you know, a dishwasher, a prep team. But for the pop-ups, it's just you. You're the only one doing it, and no one's paying you for your labor hours. You only make the money off of the sales. So it's a lot of work, but it can be very rewarding when you have people come back like, wow, that was delicious. I can't wait to see you again. I follow you on Instagram. So it can be very gratifying, but it's a lot of work that a lot of people don't see. Oh, wow. It sounds like it. What have been some of the challenges you've faced transitioning from being a pop-up to opening a brick and mortar? I would say the biggest challenge is staffing it because doing a pop-up, it's usually by myself or I have like one other friend helping me out. But now I have to hire a staff of seven to eight you know, team members. And most of them are my friends, which is great. But then everyone has their own personal lives. Like some people run school or some people don't want to work too late. So staffing has been the most challenging thing. And, you know, I want to make sure everyone's having a good time. And, you know, God forbid another pandemic does happen. Like I, I want to keep my staff to a bare minimum because I would it would just crush me to like lay off a staff of 30 people or 40 people. So I'm trying to keep my staff to a bare minimum to keep it very tight knit, but staffing is probably the biggest challenge. And even though I'll have the brick and mortar, I will probably continue to do a few pop-ups because just to remind everyone out there, like, hey, like Lino didn't forget his roots. Like I'm still out here. I know the struggle and I just want to continue that maybe like once or twice a month. Just like, hey, I'm I'm still part of the game, guys. I'm, I didn't forget where I came from. I remember my roots. And in fact, you 
are honoring a vow of opening a Korean restaurant, a vow you made in 2010 when your parents' restaurant had to close. Is that correct? That is true. Uh, the original plan, when I turned 30 years old, I moved to Atlanta and I gave myself a five-year plan. I said, after five years, I'll return to Orlando, Florida, like the prodigal son and open my own restaurant. And for better or worse, the pandemic happened at year five. And I was like, well, I can't travel right now because we're in lockdown. I was like, well, I can't go back down to Florida. And my parents were like, well, stay there, like wait till it's safe. So during that time, it was I started doing these pop-ups and they got really popular. I'm like, well, these it's getting so popular and I don't want to just abandon it and just start all over in Orlando Florida. I'm like, well, let me just stay here and continue building this fan base and this community. So in a weird twist of fate and a series of misfortune events, I kind of owe it to the pandemic because it forced me to do this and uh, stay here in Atlanta, which I love now. I love Atlanta and I, I want to stay here and like build my own roots here. You know, what were your parents' responses when you told them you were opening a brick and mortar? Uh, it was mixed, you know, a growing up Asian, like you're like, well, you know, you have to be a doctor or a lawyer or you're a disappointment. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh, they were very supportive. They knew how hard being in the service industry is and running a restaurant. They know the challenges of it after owning one and shutting one down, but they saw how happy I was. And um, they're like, well, Lino is very passionate about this. You know, we should let him do this. And my mother, God bless her, she's always tells me she's praying for me. So maybe it works, but uh, I, they are very happy with it. So, of course, I, I'm sure there'll be some criticism because my food is very fusion. They're like, this is an authentic Korean, but uh, I'll win them over eventually. Chef Lino Yi, the owner of TKO, the Korean one. Their brick-and-mortar location is open now in East Atlanta's Southern Feed Store. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Camilla Alves McConaughey addresses picky eaters with humor and care in her children's book, just try one bite. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. I'm going to read you the opening of a new children's book called Just Try One Bite. Hi, Mama. Hi, Papa. 
It's time we had a chat about oatmeal and carrots and pasta and cake and mustard and custard and chicken fried steak about pork butts and peanuts and the choices we make. There's some role reversal here as children plead with their parents to try some healthy eating. The book was co-written by Adam Mansbach and Camilla Alves McConaughey. She joins us now via Zoom to talk about Just Try One Bite. Camilla Alves McConaughey, welcome to City Lights. No, oh, thank you so much for having me. What a joy it was to hear you read. Oh, thank you. A page of the book. Well, I had so much fun. I was laughing out loud, and I wondered what gave you the idea to write this story this way. <laughs> well, you know, look, I have this big passion of inspiring people of doing better for themselves in different walks of life, like, you know, with, like I do with women of today. And the relationship with food is such an important one. And it really, you know, I'm a really big believer that you know, look, I'm not here to tell parents what to feed their kids, how to feed their kids. But, you know, the inspiration behind was to do give a reminder in a fun, funny way that the conversation about food, where it comes from, how does it work? What is good? What's not? Why is it good? Why is it not? It's an extremely important conversation. And I'm a big believer that the earlier you start that conversation, the most likely you will be setting your child up for a lifelong of good habits because they start to understand how things work early on within relationship to food. I'll give you an example. You know, I grew up, I'm, a, you know, I'm from a family of farmers and the relationship with food between, you know, seat to table was very clear for me growing up. But we never had the conversation about sugar. I had as much sugar as I wanted growing up. And what do I still struggle into today after I have three kids and adult life? It's sugar. I still have to struggle with it. I still have to work on it and, you know, have to battle with it. And again, I feel like if we start this conversation early with kids overall and make it fun, make it funny, take the guilt out of it. Talk about the balance. You know, I think it's really important to share too that the book is not about being perfect. We do say, you know, you can have your ice cream Sundays, you can have your donor hose, just not every day, just more now and then, right? I, I think that it's just you start early, make it fun, take the guilt out of it, and you know, continue that conversation on your daily life. And it's something that it will pay off. Well, I admire that so much because. I know in your career as a professional model, no doubt you have come in contact with other people who suffer from eating disorders. Yeah. And in our society, we have this bizarre relationship with food and all this stuff we're told about body image. Did that have something to do with why you wanted to write this book and why it's important for you to convey to your kids that just eating well and also splurging occasionally is okay. 
it is completely okay in my book, right? I mean, somebody might come in and say something completely different, but in my book, I think it is okay. Like in my, in my household, it's okay. You know, we've, we've, we've practiced that in the household. We, you know, we have the free for all Friday, you know, where kids eat whatever they want, you know, and we started with, I want candy. Okay. I'm driving to the gas station. Let's go get some candy, you know, and then, <laughs> and then slowly turning to, you know, well, let's get a real dessert instead of candy. And then it turning to let's make our own, right? So it's baby steps. I think that you said it very in a, in a beautiful way that the relationship with food, it's a lot of times not put it properly or not fun. And we're going to have this relationship for the rest of our lives. We're, we need to eat every day, daily, right? Like, like it, we're going to have that relationship forever. And we finding ways to, again, make it fun, get the balance. Relationship with food should be fun. And, and it doesn't have to be overcomplicated. If you at least slowly make better for you choices, do that for a little while. And then you're going to start feeling better. You're going to start having more fun with food. And then all of a sudden you go, you get more curious. You start going, what's the next level of doing better for myself? Right. And what's the next one? Yeah. You mentioned growing up in a family of farmers. I love these two lines in the book. The best food of all, the food that really rocks comes straight off a tree not straight out of a box. <laughs> so do you and your family plant your own food? Do you have a garden as well? We do. So when we lived in California, we pretty much grew majority of the stuff that we consumed in the backyard. We had a little bit of everything. And we'll go to the store, you know, for the nuts and the, you know, meats and cheeses and stuff like that. But all the vegetables like and fruits, I mean, we used to tell the kids, okay, run in the back, go get the blueberries, you know, go get salad stuff, go get the garlic, go get the onions. Like we grew everything. We had bees. And in Texas now, we've been in Texas now for over 10 years. We've got a little bit of challenge growing things there and we still do. And right, the garden was doing really good. We had watermelons growing and tomatoes were coming, the zucchinis and the cucumbers. Everything was growing. My little one really loves to watch the whole process. Uh, we had the freeze. So right now my garden is completely empty. It killed mm. everything, but we're, we're, we're waiting for the right time to start all over again. Good. The illustrations are hilarious. Readers see three little kids running after their parents, trying to get them to eat carrots and broccoli, while the parents make faces and pretend to barf, putting it elegantly. Would you tell us about the illustrator? Absolutely. So Mike Bolt, oh my gosh, what can I say? He you know, Adam says it in a great way. He says, I cannot imagine after Mike did the illustrations, like Adam's like, I cannot imagine the words in the page without the characters. It's like, you really see them. You really feel them. He did such a great job. You, you feel like you're there with the kids going, come on, you know, <laughs> in your face, mom and dad, right? You you feel like you're right there with them. And, you know, and it is a multicultural family, you know, that's my family and that's Adam's family. Like it's, he did a, such a wonderful job. 
He did, and I love the youngest child. A little boy looks like he's still in diapers or at least a toddler. And move over, Maggie Simpson, because (laughs) this little guy gives Maggie room for competition, I've got to say. What are the contract negotiations the kids make with their parents, Camilla? Oh, in the book? Yeah. I mean, they try all kinds of things. They even offer them a car. (laughs) They offer, you know, you can come and do, you know, come to work for a day. You can play this. You can, you know, you can have, well, you know, you can stay up late. You can, you know, not take a shower today. (laughs) All those good things we negotiate. You mentioned you have three children in your family. How old are they now? So we have a 9, 12, and 13. Oh, they're big kids. So that little, the little one with the pacifier, he's not out of your household. Yes, we grew out of that stage, <laughs> just like the parents eventually do in the book. <laughs> Did you put anything from your own family into this story? Look, I think that, like, I have three kids. Adam has three kids. Mike has three kids. The editor has three kids. I think we all, you know, could really see ourselves in this book in terms of, you know, trying to get our kids to just try one bite. And I think that majority of parents go through the same struggles, whether easier or harder you know, kids go through different stages, right? And, um, you know, and one thing too, like, you know, when you have the kids catching the parents, right? Like after their parents, (laughs) I had, my kids have caught me before, right? Like I had my chocolate candy stash, you know, all the way up in the pantry. And I'm thinking I'm being so sly about it. Like, you know, nobody knows is there. And they walk in the pantry going, what are you doing? We know, like we... We know that's being there. And why are you eating that? You know, they have inspired me to do better as well. Oh, well, or to keep it for that free for all Friday. You mentioned women of today just a moment ago. That's something you founded. How would you describe women of today? Look, Women of Today is such a beautiful community. I'll start with that. We started in 2015. And back then, the conversation was very narrow between just women trying to learn from each other. I mean, the conversation is broader now, right? But the whole mission was, hey, how can we learn from each other? And how can we do better for ourselves, better for our families, our households, and our community? And basically, all the content that you see, it's content that the community is asking us. And they ask for a lot of food. Uh, Food is a big topic on women of today, but it's all better for you, easy to make, accessible, affordable. We also do beauty. We do hacks. We do health. We do a little bit of everything. We do, uh, you know, charity work. We just did things with, you know, Ukraine and and Palestine and Israel and Africa. And, you know, and then we go to the community and go, who do you want to help? And then we have the conversation to give them the power to do so. You know, so it's, it's a beautiful community and we're very active. You know, I highly recommend that people sign up for the newsletter because that's where they get to 
get the inside scoop of what we're doing. And it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a labor of love that it's being generally organically growing. We have, we don't do advertisement and, you know, everybody that's there is there because they just really love what we do and what we stand for. Camilla, part of what I enjoyed, in addition to reading Just Try One Bite, was learning more about you. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes, you, you're native of Brazil. Your English is fantastic. And I read that you took jobs cleaning houses and waitressing as a way of trying to learn English, to perfect your language. What a fantastic command you have of the language, and what a lucky family you have. No, thank you. You just got me to right now with those kind words. Thank you. I did not speak any English when I first got here, so somehow this is a... (laughs) You know, I went to school, but very little here in the States, very little. So, you know, I still have my moments. I still, I learn a new word every day of the language. It's very cool. Very cool. I'm constantly going, what do you mean by that? What is that? You know, and I'm constantly learning, which is, it's a beautiful thing. And it's a great practice for everybody, right? You can just learn something every day. Camilla Alves McConaughey. More information on her children's book, Just Try One Bite, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll dive into the world of Dungeons and Dragons to hear about Kennesaw State's upcoming production of the stage play She Kills Monsters. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. For the unfamiliar, Dungeons and Dragons, also known as D&D, is a phenomenally popular game in which players create complex characters and plots within a group setting. Players dive into a fantastical world filled with goblins, wizards, and more, and participants become central characters in their own stories. She Kills Monsters is a stage play that explores the world of D&D from an unusual and nuanced perspective. The production opened soon in the Onyx Theater at Kennesaw State and runs from October 11th through the 16th. City Light senior producer Kim Drobe spoke with director Jim Davis, puppet designer Sedwan Hooks, and student actor India Smith via Zoom. Davis began with a summary of the play. It starts out kind of tragically. It is about 
Agnes, who is described in the script as an average woman. At the beginning of her play, or the play, her family dies tragically in a car accident. And so she really has to come to grips with that and is dealing with her grief and her relationship with her family, and particularly her little sister, Tilly. They always had kind of a tough relationship, whereas Agnes was kind of mainstream and normal. Tilly was a weirdo and a geek. And Agnes comes across a Dungeons and Dragons module that Tilly had created, a Dungeons and Dragons map, an adventure. And she wants to play it so she can get to know her little sister, who's unfortunately no longer around, better. And so she goes to the local dungeon master, a guy named Chuck, who is a weirdo, and (laughs) they play the game. And the uh, production really kind of splits in half. Half of the play is in the real world where she's dealing with her friends and her boyfriend, but the other half is in Dungeons and Dragons world. And there are monsters and sword fights and it's big and loud and crazy. And it really kind of reconciles these two things. And at the end, ultimately she gets more of an understanding of who her sister really was. I love it. So do any of you have a previous connection to Dungeons and Dragons? And if so, would you share what the game means to you? India, would you mind if we started with you? Oh, of course. I've only played D&D one time. I had two very close people in my life that loved the game so, so much. And I played my freshman year of college. I didn't understand a lot of it, to be completely honest. Um, I was just going with the flow. I think I was um, a dark elf and I drew my power from the sun. Nice. That's the best I can remember. I, I've always been into medieval and magical and fantasy. So even if I don't have an incredibly strong connection to D&D, I do have a strong connection to like the power of magic and what it does mean to people. So I, I love that aspect of the story. Fantastic. What about you, Jim? I am a Gen Xer, and so I grew up in kind of the golden age of D&D. So when I was in junior high school and high school way back when in the 1980s, I was a pretty enthusiastic Dungeons & Dragons player and made some really great friends there. And the thing that really appealed to me was one of the big themes in the show, the idea that you could really kind of use it as a as a tool for self-expression and also to create community. Some of the folks I played Dungeons and Dragons with a long time ago are still friends of mine. So there is a real power to that. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that when you play Dungeons and Dragons, you, you are expressing yourself, you're making yourself vulnerable. And a lot of times that creates a really cool, interesting emotional bond. No doubt. And said one, have you ever played before? I may be the only person that has not played Dungeons and Dragons that, that's working on this show. My previous connection to Dungeons and Dragons would probably be the fact that I have designed and built this show before with my high school alma mater. I attacked the design in a totally different way. But other than that, the fact that I'm a part of the puppet community, lots and lots of my friends have played Dungeons and Dragons. There is an overlap there, isn't there? Yes, definitely. (laughs) So the world of Dungeons and Dragons is great for sparking imagination and using puppetry in the production just makes perfect sense. Sedwin, would you describe some of the creatures that you've created? Sure. So more of my connection with Dungeons and Dragons is looking at some of the drawings inspired by the lore of the game. 
We've got a five-headed dragon, a beholder that has one great big eye and a bunch of eye stalks attached to him, and a number of other monsters that are just amazing. So our creatures in the show, we've gotten really ambitious with our design and fabrication of, for instance, the beholder. Sometimes he's a smaller puppet when you see other iterations of the show, but for ours, he's about eight feet tall and really wide and a big wearable suit that uh, has all these big old hand-painted eyeball on the front and a moving mouth. It's pretty fun. The dragon is the showstopper though. It is, it's a big rod puppet that is above the puppeteers on long rods and it has a moving mouth and extendable wings that flap and there's about six puppeteers on it, working all five of the heads and holding the puppet up in the air and a person back on the tail. So it's, it's really involved and it'll be exciting to see it uh, in practice in the actual show. Wow, that sounds amazing. So the play is toggling back and forth between reality and fantasy. Jim, was it challenging to stage it? It really has been challenging in a lot of ways. The script is really interesting in that the playwright Kui Gwen doesn't really give you a lot of a lot of description or instruction on how to do it. And so scenes will kind of bleed right into the other one. And at, at one point there is an enormous monster fight in it and the stage directions are basically, and then an enormous monster fight happens. And so, <laughs> And that that is one of those things that, as a director, is simultaneously <laughs> maddening, but also awesome. We have got a brilliant fight director, Amelia Fisher, working with us. And so she's been helping us stage these, these really remarkable fights. But it really has been an interesting challenge, kind of trying to be true to what the playwright wants to do, but also trying to figure out what the playwright wants us to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's a fantastic sentence. Well, (laughs) India, you play the deceased sister, Tilly. And speaking of fight scenes, you have a martial arts background. Tell me how that helped you with this play. Oh, it has helped immensely. Growing up, so I did martial arts for six and a half years. So all throughout my childhood, honestly, one third of my life, which is crazy when you put it in that perspective, it has helped immensely. And for the first time, I'm actually able to turn to my parents and be like, hey, thanks for making me do that. Because <laughs> I, I never wanted to do martial arts ever. And this is the first time that I'm getting the use out of it. Because even though uh, we're stage fighting, so there's no hits actually landing and there's no actual violence involved, like a lot of the technique and like the natural movement of my body does really help. And um, it's really awesome because Amelia is an incredible, incredible human to work with. So when I have like an idea or even a, we have like fight captains within cast, just to, you know, make sure when Amelia is not there, everything is running smoothly and safely. I was fight captain for a previous show I did at KSU Mother Road. And even during that, like she valued my experience in martial arts. And when I would have like, oh, can we 
do a punch this way or do a kick this way. Like she's just incredible to work with on how to make things look realistic and still be safe and still put on an amazing show and still tell the story. I'm honestly truly blessed to be able to utilize a big part of my life in something else that's really big in my life. So yeah, no, it's been incredible. Do you have any thoughts on the character that is Tilly's choice of Dungeons and Dragons character? When when you're a 15 year old girl trying to figure out your life and trying to figure out who you exactly want to be and your identity, you don't understand that you're going to change your identity 40 different times before you're actually gone as a 15 year old. And so if when you have an outlet where you can go somewhere and be anybody you want to be, create anything, like I really respect Tilly for going out and doing that. I think Tillius embodies that strength and that fearlessness that Tilly doesn't have or couldn't acquire while she was alive. Tilly's just fearless and Tillius really shows how fearless Tilly is. And Tilius is the name of her Dungeons and Dragons character. Yes. What type of character is it? So Tilius is a paladin, basically like a like a holy knight. So you are the best of the best when it comes to knights in this world. What a great role. This is one of the things that really attracted me to this script. The fact that it has these, you know, strong female characters kind of gotten to be a cliche. But as India was saying, this these really are strong female characters. Even Agnes, the sister who is ostensibly the main character, She is not as kind of overtly powerful as Tilly is, but we see her kind of move into her power and kind of reach a point of self-actualization that is really fun and interesting and very different from the journey that Tilly is on. And to see the two of them complement each other is really, really cool. So yeah, that was one of the things that I really thought was great about this show. The fact that it has not just two two lead female characters, but two lead female characters who go out and fight monsters and take care of business. Sedwan, I loved your description of the dragon. And I think you said that it takes five puppeteers to make the dragon work. Six puppeteers. Six puppeteers, yes. Wow. So your history in puppeteering is phenomenal. You've had an incredible career, or obviously still in the midst of an incredible career. What is it like turning over your creations to someone else to then control? Oh, that's a great question. All through the construction process, you're doing your best to make sure that all of your all of your creation is as performer friendly as possible, but the rubber really meets the road when it's time for rehearsals and you see it up on its feet for the first time. And typically there are adjustments and everything. But the biggest thrill is to see the audience's reaction when the puppets go out on stage and it's it's a unique position because i'm a performer as well so sometimes i'm performing the puppets that i've constructed but it's really fun to watch to step outside of that and be able to watch from the audience and feel what the audience is feeling and witness the moment of impact when the characters you've created have enter the space it's really exciting but what it does me being a performer puts me in a unique position as a designer because I know how to take into consideration some of what the students will be going through when they're implementing the puppets into the show and puppeteering the characters so I take considerations that some designers might not because of the fact that I've done my fair share of puppeteering. 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. India, have you worked with puppets before on stage? I have not. Um, it's always been a personal dream, like for uh, Avenue Q and things like that. But the puppets for this show are puppets I genuinely never imagined <laughs> to be operable for live theater. Like, yeah, you know, like in theory, yes, you can. Or like on Broadway, absolutely. But the fact that we're doing it at a collegiate level is ridiculously cool. But however, I am happy that my character physically does not have to operate one because I could not promise that it would go correctly <laughs> at all. Well, what about interacting with them? We have yet to start interacting with them, but all of our puppet operators, they are close friends of mine or new friends I've just made. And I really love their individual personalities as humans. And so I'm very interested to see how they can bring that into their operation as of the monsters and the different puppets. And I would just love to see what they give me to play with and so I, and how we can play with each other once we get to work with it. Well, to wrap up for you, Jim, what are the underlying conversations that you think She Kills Monsters could bring about? One of the big themes and ideas that's present in this play is the idea of community and embracing people because of their differences and embracing people in the name of diversity and understanding people. The entire play is about Agnes trying to understand her sister that she just never really got or never understood, but she is forced to at this moment and really immerse herself in her sister's world and think about things from a new perspective. And boy, you know, it's, it's tough to argue that that's not the most important thing in the world. So even though this is a play that has sword fights and the costumes are spectacular and the puppets are going to be wild. It really is at its heart a play about people trying to connect with each other. And, you know, boy, that's great. That's the most important thing there is. Director Jim Davis, puppet designer Sedwan Hooks, and student actor India Smith. Speaking with City Light senior producer Kim Drove. She Kills Monsters takes the stage at Kennesaw State University's Onyx Theater beginning October 11th and running through the 16th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There's more puppet-related entertainment we have to share with you today, Acapella Books and the Center for Puppetry Arts have partnered to present Heather Newton's new novel, The Puppeteer's Daughters, this Thursday at Manuel's Tavern. The story is about a fictional character named Walter Gray, a famous, aged puppeteer who has three daughters by three different women. On his 80th birthday, he announces that he has a secret fourth daughter, and the three daughters then set out to look for their possible fourth sister. The family saga shares how the three daughters must confront their fractured relationships both with their father and each other. 
Newton said she was inspired by her own relationship with her father. I knew I wanted to write a father-daughter story. Uh, my dad was a somewhat eccentric person, and he also had dementia towards the end of his life. Um, I have come to a point in my own life where I've learned to appreciate what he was able to give me and not resent any longer the things that he was not able to give me. So I wanted to write a novel where the characters experience that same sort of realization. The Puppeteer's Daughter author event is this Thursday, October 6th, and it's free to attend. More information is at acapellabooks.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Emmy Award-winning director Stanley Nelson tells us about his two new documentaries, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom, and Becoming Frederick Douglass. Both films will air on WABE-TV. Plus, the legendary Smokey Robinson joins us ahead of his upcoming concert at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the charismatic chef behind East Atlanta's TKO restaurant, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.